I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and Kat Ellinger, author, editor, and film critic. The psychedelic movement in cinema theoretically started in the mid to late 60s when LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs became popular among a significant amount of the population. Now, movies with psychedelic imagery gave you a kick in one of two ways. It either tripped you out if you were on a substance, enhancing or triggering a deeper experience, or it gave you the impression you were doing so without the risk of actually taking illicit drugs. Although the movement is attributed to late 60s through the early 70s, there's a number of movies that can contain surrealist imagery and experimental narratives that can be included before then, including Chien Andalou from the 30s, and some would argue Mary Poppins, which popped up on a whole bunch of lists I was looking at as like an early surrealist uh, psychedelic film. Now, today we're going to look at two movies that fall into that category. But before we do that, Kat, let's talk a bit about some of the better examples of the genre. Like, when is it actually effective filmmaking and when is it just people, you know, jerking off? I don't know. It's one of those genres, isn't it? It can go either way. It can become the most pretentious, idiotic thing that you've ever seen in your life, or you can just be be vibing on it. Mm. I don't know about. I don't want to say bad things though. I don't no, want to, no, that's fair. no, and no, I have no issues with uh, with Goddard in his mm. his sort of Maoist Maoist is is heavy political phase in the late sixties, mm. and then some of his later <laughs> yeah. work. But I am drawn to really surrealist work, especially like Eastern European. Like I love, it's one of my specialties. Mm. It's obviously Andrzej Jaworski, who I've mm-hmm. been working on a book on for the last couple of years. A lot of the Czech New Wave. I think that's when it really, really gets it right because you know this. You do feel like you're channeling some really like new free movement. This energy. There's a lot of politics in there, and that can be wonderful but i do think it can get very self-indulgent as as well you know if you're taking something and filming things it's not always going to be as amazing as you think it Mm. is (laughs) Uh, maybe have a look at magical mystery tour and let's Uh, take a bunch of substances take some cameras out and see what happens and nothing happens i think yeah i think a good one you don't have to be on the drugs to enjoy you know a bad one you probably need the drugs i have a soft spot for head i genuinely like head i think it's a lot of fun i think head's been reclaimed i think it's on the criterion collection or something isn't it it's, is it maybe i thought it was i thought somebody yeah. had i don't know 
Maybe I'm making it up. No, out. that one's fun. My enjoyment, too, always kind of hinges based on, like, with the imagery, especially when you're watching stuff from the 60s and 70s, they're not always doing it safely. Yeah. Like, unions are not always involved. Yes. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in one yes. of our movies today. <laughs> Both of them. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and so that's, like, I find my myself kind of being removed from the situation being like, oh, that doesn't look okay. Like, that doesn't look like a, like a safe set or a safe practice. And that always pulls me me out a little bit as opposed too to being much like, of a what performer becky you're too, <laughs> you're too you gotta let the film wash over you let the magic alter your mind i care about other humans i'm sorry <laughs> i'll do my best to bring that out all right well let's get into our first movie today because i think most people that aren't deep dive midnight movie fans are most familiar with the name yodorowsky from a documentary made about him about a movie he never got to make now one of the things you'll glean about him from that documentary is that he is two things a visionary filmmaker, and deeply intense. Uh, He's got clear (laughs) ideas about how he wants things to look and feel, and he will go to any lengths to get the shot he is after. Now, keep that in mind as we venture into one of his most famous films, Holy Mountain. This one actually does have a plot of sorts amidst all the intense imagery. Okay, it's more of a, a premise than a plot, Now, did this, as Jodorowsky wanted, turn your brain into a flying carpet, or did it pull rusty brains out of your burrows to dimensions you had never imagined? And I quote, Cam, (laughs) do you have an opinion on either of those? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it does. And and the interesting thing is, I think I saw this when I was rather young the first time. uh, And of course, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But now that I'm a wizened old sage, (laughs) uh, yeah, I feel like this does have a lot of plot and it's pretty straightforward. And uh, yeah, I kind of have come to... be interested in the fact that Yedorowski, yeah, he, he's kind of a guy who who does experimental f- pl- stuff with a real plot, with a real driving forward narrative. Uh, so I think that it's actually a lot more accessible than some uh, psychedelic art things that really don't have that driving narrative uh, in a way. Uh, in in other ways, the minutia is completely inaccessible because it's you're like, I can't read Hebrew. Um, but, <laughs> I don't know. He goes both ways. Uh, but yeah, basically, to, to just try to get a, a vague version of the plot out of the way, um, there there's a character called the Thief, uh, sort of a Christ allegory, apparently also an allegory for the Fool and the Tarot. Uh, but it starts off a real Christ situation. He's going through kind of a greedy modern world where everything's bad. He eventually uh, finds this crazy tower in which an alchemist lives. That alchemist introduces him to uh, seven other people based on the planets, uh, and they all go towards this holy mountain in the hopes of finding immortality. And uh, along the way, uh, crazy images, crazy metaphors, all sorts of magic and, and uh, mysticism from every religion around the world, practically. Yeah, but I, I also, the other weird thing is I feel like he's a big Buddhist, and because because of that, I think that this movie actually has a lot in common with martial arts films. There's a lot of those training and kind of uh, a wise person telling you what you have to do and then they mm. do it. Um, I, I, so I feel, feel like it's quite accessible to just a random person, except for some of the images, which are shocking and unusual. Yeah. <laughs> Kat, do you have strong feelings about this one in Yodorowsky in general? I do. I absolutely love him. And I love surrealism anyway. And it's an interesting one to put in psychedelia because Hodorowski came from somewhere else. Surreal- the surrealists were like mm. doing this way before the hippies. Mm. Like yeah. They were taking drugs. They were doing like magical ritual and finding themselves in automatic writing. 
And if you look at uh, Hodorowski's background in the panic movement, they were like trying to evoke Artaud's theatre of cruelty, mm. which I seem to constantly talk about at the moment. <laughs> I was doing it recently about Gaspar Noé as well. Sure. I bring up Brechtian theatre all the time, so yes, I get it. It's usually like, tends to come back to one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot more going on, even though he was using hallucinogenics, but he was kind of using them. But I find him fascinating. He's he's quote unquote problematic, probably a bit mm. of a dick at this point in his yeah. career. Yeah. You get the sense that it's interesting, Cam, you mentioned martial arts, because I've always thought of this as the kind of spiritual version of Game of Death, you know, that brief. Oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. have to go, and, go yeah. and sort of visit these different masters and stuff. And then he does that in El Topo as well, this like yeah, meeting. Yeah. And you just get the sense this is somebody who is desperately trying to find something. And, mm. you know, so it's like the Kabbalah and the tarot and the you know, Christianity. Yeah. It's like the whole thing. And I just find it fascinating. The fact that he was a dick even more fascinating. I think yes. he's chilled out over the years. He's become mm-hmm. he's become like that guy in the Kung, Kung Fu movies who gives the advice now. He's <laughs> yeah. like, more yes. chilled out. And and I'm pretty sure he said on one of his commentaries he wouldn't swap himself like he was about 70 or so. He's 90 mm. now, isn't he? Yeah. He was like, I wouldn't swap myself now for that guy. So he at least realizes now that he was probably in a very <laughs> intense place. But it's just yeah. great being on that trip. And then just the whole how they made this thing. It's like, my God. <laughs> Talk about yeah. getting people involved. Yeah, take all these mushrooms. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it's just madness, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You can see why unions did not want to allow this man to have sure. anyone, and they had to go film secretly in the mountains with, yeah. with different performers. And I mean, it's it, I, I'm fascinated, like you say too. It's it's I think we we put these both under a banner of psychedelic films simply because it was like we were kind of trying to find movies to match together. And we for a minute we had the two kind of we had Lamora and uh, Messiah of Evil, which were kind of like the weird nightmare get under your skin ones, and then we had Holy Mountain and a couple other like visually wild and eventually were just like well both of these movies are kind of like getting in your brain in weird ways yeah. but i i like that you you also point out and, and i think it's in the movie too like this movie was made uh, somewhat with substances but then even the movie itself has that point where the guy offers them substances and is made to be a fool yeah so like, the guy ah, with the pills. what do you believe yeah because yeah. i don't think he was into all of that he no. saw it as more as this kind of consciousness expat like very into the vision mm. quest and stuff like that but to put that into to film there's so few that do that kenneth anger maybe but for hodorowski sure. it's like this this weird ritual that he invites you to and mm. and and it's night nightmarish because like people often think spiritual awakening is people kind of sat around zen like going, but, <laughs> but but actually a lot of spiritual awakening is like nightmares it's like confronting mm-hmm. this stuff like the dark night of the soul and holy <laughs> mountain definitely ends on that note with People yeah. screaming and uh, <laughs> he was like, yeah, they were facing their own death. They were facing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. the seven people are also the worst human beings in the world who, are, <laughs> yeah. who, who, yeah, who do theor- like recognize they are the worst people in the world <laughs> and need to come yeah. to some sort of enlightenment. So that's good. But it's it's interesting to me because I think about a filmmaker and we've talked about him previously on the podcast, which is why I'm going to use him as an example, like uh, Dushan Makaveyev. And I feel like he has a more linear idea to his I'm going to throw 
throw a bunch of imageries uh, at mm. you, but I have one driving point that I'm trying to make. Whereas I feel like Yodorowsky is more like take all of the different things and kind of glean what you can from it. Like if this hits yeah. you, if this hits you, that's great. Whereas I feel like there's more of like an intellectual thread to pull with someone like Deshaun Makaveya. Like there's more more of that to it and more of an intellectualism. And Yodorowsky, I'm not saying it's not intellectual. I'm just saying it's definitely more image driven and it's more a sensation driven than it no, is a brain he, engagement. He sure. actually described himself as, as having three balls to, to Godard's mm. one. And it was like, <laughs> because he was intellectual, whereas Hodorowsky has three balls. One is spiritual, one is sexual, and one is intellectual. Yeah. I, I think he he was, like, he described the whole thing, and a lot of his films around this time has been some process of ritual for him mm-hmm. for himself. So I don't think he knew what he was doing. I don't think any of them did. They were just... Yeah dropping the mushrooms because some Zen master <laughs> told them. Didn't they stay in, like, a house for about a yeah, month? Yeah, they all stayed in a house. Having, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah. four hours sleep and then and he imagine wasn't allowed to sleep for a week. What was, yeah, what did what did they do for that month to then come out? <laughs> it's very, yeah, and I, I mean, I like, that's the thing, too, is I think, I, because I think he, he, especially the religious aspect, there's, I, I think like a like a parable he he's very into presenting you with a thing and being like well like I'm not going to explain it and, and that's also I think why he likes to pull all the imagery from different cultures because he knows that like whatever context you're coming to you may take this in differently but yeah I, I do think that it's also hard to tell what's just nonsense that he yeah, had a dream about and yeah well and things just look cool and he says that film is his medium because film contains everything it is sound it is vision it is uh, I mean I'm sure at some point he will come out with a 4k movie which will be like smells and water being flicked at you I'm surprised he didn't um, but uh, but let's get into the making of this and all of that imagery as well because that that involves the Beatles. Kat, do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that? Well, he didn't. He tried to get George Harrison involved, and there's this whole scene. I assume this wouldn't be considered a spoiler, where they turn a turd into gold. Yes. <laughs> and and there's a, a, a quite graphic anus washing shot mm-hmm. next to a baby hippo, which and, is the part that really disturbs yeah. me. And flattering mm. angle, and yeah. and George Harrison wanted to be in the film. He was like totally into being in the film until he realized he'd have to show his butthole. And then he was like, no. And for some reason that was a deal breaker to Hodorowsky. It's like, well, you're not going to show your butthole. You can't be in this, <laughs> this film. See, that, and that makes me wonder if he learned that lesson going into the Dune thing, because then he was offering those actors anything they wanted. Orson yeah. Welles, you want me to bring your favorite chef in from France to cook for you every day? <laughs> Done. You want to be the most expensive paid actor per minute in the world, Salvador Dali? Done. Yeah. Like, it's it's interesting that, like, he started to realize kind of the draw of what those people were to what, mm. like, to get people to watch it, right? So um, the origins of the the funding for this, because as I'm watching this, did you guys have the same feeling? Was I mean, this movie is beautiful, but there's so many sets, there's yeah. so many actors, there's so much, like there's a huge production value. And I was like, who the fuck paid for this? Who gave this man money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the answer is, in part, John Yoko and uh, one of their producers, Alan Klein, um, who were multimillionaires. And John and Yoko had seen this, had seen El Topo, which is his mm-hmm. like take on the Western, which is also, 
totally bonkers at a midnight movie screening and they kind of got in touch with him and were like hey we're interested in funding your next movie because we hear you have trouble finding funding yes. <laughs> I wonder why <laughs> so yeah. we hear you're regularly run out of Mexico <laughs> <laughs> weird eh so yeah. they gave him uh, so they gave him the money to, to make the movie and um, that's when George Harrison got involved and uh, we've talked before on the show about George Harrison's producing um, mm. and it, it's interesting because of course he's known for his like spiritualism and interest interest especially in like Indian esoteric Hinduism uh, like that sort of um, sort of era so I can see how this would ring bells for him but I can't help but wonder mm. if he thought this was going to sit kind of along the same lines of as Life of Brian which he mm. also produced yeah it's interesting this was like well the end of the 60s or mid 60s this again it's a subject i must be fixated on because i seem to go <laughs> back to it all the time <laughs> but at the end of the 1800s you had that whole spiritual crisis and fantasy and all these occultists that that then like became surrealist you had all that but it was still quite underground so the 60s was the first time that like occultism and mysticism actually became mainstream and you had like crowley on the cover of sergeant pepper and it, the whole thing, like mysticism, occult, ritual, became a form of rebellion. It was like this this kickback against the the church and the kind of old ways. So you can totally see why Hodorowski would be kind of adopted by that movement, <laughs> even though he, he wasn't really a hippie. He was sort of like totally, he's in yeah. his own universe. Like he's yeah, <laughs> in his own universe, isn't yeah. he? It, so it's it's amazing that you can see why, you know, going into a film like that with this kind of master ritual guy and having these experiences would, would be amazing, even if, you know, it's like get rid of the ego. The whole thing is like get rid of the ego. And yeah. it's like, but you won't show your butthole, George. You're not going to fathom. Where are you? Yeah, you're not that getting rid of his ego. Yeah, and I mean, all the all the terrible people they show are weird mixes of essentially like hippies turned capitalists. Yeah. Like in a way, it kind of sees where that movement is going. It's all psychedelic weapons and stuff. Yeah, it's, totally. Yeah. I, I love one of his old commentaries where he, he kind of, says this predicts this and this predicts <laughs> and i'm very pathetic yes. <laughs> but he's he's not wrong like watching no, it it yeah. did feel like something where we're still making commentary about that stuff but i just felt like i was more actively engaged because it was so whack doodle yeah sure i mean i think he, i think he knows that like uh, not not in a sexual sense but a certain sensuality mm. of images draws you in and i think he also keeps it's got a good clip to it you know and, and that's part of what's wild about that uh like that it's a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget or whatever because yeah there's <laughs> these beautiful sets over and over and over and a wall of a thousand testicles and like you know it's like <laughs> and it was one of those could you imagine being his pa or whatever or like production yeah. designers or <laughs> <No>. like <laughs> just i can't even imagine <laughs> We're going to need you nude in this scene. Off yeah. you go. Um, yeah. But then he's also hanging out with people that are perfectly fine with this. Like one of the most um, famous scenes of this is the opening scene where he's wearing the Pharrell hat. And uh, it mm. actually is Yodorowsky playing the master in this film, of course. And he's got the two women who he's like ritualistically shaving their head and things. And these women were not paid for their time. They wanted a quote unquote spiritual yeah. experience and therefore they participated. So I'm like... 
But how do you like I, I, I think I'm curious about the idea of the spiritual experience. Like, do you feel like you have to do something weird? Because some people get it looking that at was a sunset. So so kind of counterculture though, wasn't it? They were all mm, yeah. doing it. They were all trying to find themselves doing these insane things that <laughs> Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's been taken over by tech bros now, yeah. right? Like those are the guys now who want the ayahuasca, and it's it's not gone. It's just uh, I don't know. Now they want to go to space. I guess that's the new, <laughs> the new talk- trip. Cam, it is the final frontier. So. Yeah, can, sure. can we talk about? I I don't know why I'd never noticed this before. I actually made a, a social media post about it earlier, but mm. the fact that. Odorowski's penis is in every frame of this film. Like, it's literally everywhere. Even the, mm. the, the mountain hat man looks like a penis. Mm. And I just, I, I've i had this ongoing fixation with, like, what, what could you call them? Like, occultists or mystics that came out of that generation or just before. Like, Crowley, LeVay, Kenneth yeah. Anger, Alexander. Where they took ritual magic is performance and it was all about them like all about their ego all about and i feel that hodorowski and this isn't a criticism i just find it a weird phenomenon with certain men how he centers everything about it's almost as if he's positioning himself as god at one point Mm. he's like arguing we're all the god which is very pagan and also very buddhist you don't worship the god you become the god but it's like dude your cock is everywhere in this. <laughs> like, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but then, then then, you have the idea of the ego, right? I mean, we could get very deep into this, but yeah, it's like, but yeah. then it's aren't like... you supposed to be eliminating that and that's the point of the movie? Yeah. <laughs> like... And you can't, you can't eliminate the ego when it's you going, ha-ha, the ego. <laughs> like, when the final image is you dancing around about how right you are. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's it, he's yeah he's a fascinating guy, and you're right. Like there's plenty of bad man stuff. You don't want to research his opinions too much. But uh, I think yeah, it's but great. He's, I don't it's know. Good, yeah. You know, you don't get many singular characters like mm-hmm. and who like. stay that way really. Yeah. Like like he's he is still a real weirdo. <laughs> so I love the idea as well that like in the middle of this film he decided that he understood feminism. <laughs> <laughs> Get into that, Becky. So he got the money based on the fact that he was going to do the story of O. Kind of, kind of, but not quite. Can you imagine? I know they wanted him to do story of O, but can you imagine Hodorowski's story of O? I mean, part of me is like, I I wish you did. Yeah, like (laughs) that would have been the most sadistic. Yeah, for people who do not know, the story of O is kind of considered a female version of like one thousand, one hundred days, one thousand days of Sodom, one hundred days of Sodom. I don't remember. It's one of the two. It's a lot of Sodom. It's it's not it's it's not a lot of fun. But it's like this extremely masochistic story about like a woman going through these sexual ordeals and she's debased on a number of occasions. It's pretty rough and pretty intense and there's a reason there has not been a film made of it. No, there is. There is a there's a yes, yes Jenkins. Is there which I love actually yeah. Oh yeah, Udo Kier. Oh, Udo Kier like in it. it. In his, Udo in his really it? hot face. He's like young yeah. Udo Kier with the sparkly yeah. eyes. 
this might be a movie you like, Becky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I won't spoil it, now. but the end pissed me off. Okay. Just, okay. 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 All right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it is a beautiful film. It's totally Is it like beautiful. on a scale of like The Collector? How pissed off am I going to be Oh, no. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. All right. All right. We'll see. Well, it's okay. So how this sort of worked in terms of that that movie being made was it um he was approached by so Yodorowsky, surprise, surprise, did not read the ownership right contract when he took the money from Alan Klein. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that he actually owned the rights to both Holy Mountain and El Topo. Now, Alan Klein had already promised a bunch of investors that uh, Yodorowsky was going to make the story of O. However, Yodorowsky had found feminism while making this and just found (laughs) the, the story completely reprehensible and said, I won't do it. And in retaliation, Alan Klein pulled both movies movies from circulation until the 90s. So it was impossible to see either of those movies um, unless you were at like a very specific screening that was sort of allowed at that point. Now they're pretty ubiquitous and everyone sort of uh, wants to screen them everywhere, but they were completely unavailable for like 30 years, uh, 20 years, 30 years. I was, I remember as a youth when uh, El Topo came back, (laughs) they played at the Metro (laughs) Cinema in Edmonton. And uh, yeah, it was quite something. It was, it was crazy. And and yeah, it was, it's interesting because I think that kind of, it didn't taint his career, obviously, because he went on to try to do Dune, but it, uh, uh, it, it, I feel like the films after also kind of immediately fell into obscurity and are only yeah. now kind of being packaged as an oeuvre. Because I think the first movie of his I saw was Santa Sangre, and I like that one very much. And that's, I think, a more traditional slasher. Like, it's definitely yeah. more, like, you know, it didn't make a mainstream movie, but it's definitely more linear. I was going to say, like, it, it's amazing because after June. The June documentary, not June, because we never got that, and I'll be forever no. sad yeah. about that. <laughs> but would it have been good, Kat? Do you think it would have been good? Yeah, I think it would have been the most amazing. I mean, we almost got it with Shurowski's Silver Globe, which was like the more yeah. nihilistic version, but it would have been totally on those lines, just bigger, because Shurowski didn't have the funding that, that Hodorowski could get. Pink Floyd were going to be in it. Like the whole thing was just, <laughs> oh, please. Part of me thinks there's just like, like it couldn't have existed. Like it was like an art project <laughs> that needed to fail. He was working, he was secretly trying to make it Could fail. Could you imagine attempting to put Salvador Dali and Orson Welles in the same room? Like I think oh, that's please. the one where I mean, want to touch yeah. it. <laughs> The thing I love too is Dune fans wouldn't like it, right? Like yeah. <laughs> they also wouldn't. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But but I do think that people like Hodorowski and also Shurowski, Valerian Borovchak, all of those filmmakers, which were so kind of obscure for so long, are actually more accepted by the quote unquote midnight movie crowd first. You know, Santa Sangre yeah. was the horror fans are all over Santa Sangre. And then it's like much later on, the kind of serious cinephiles lift up a rock and go, oh, yeah, you know, this. uh, But it's like, you know, there's this like weird kind of, I don't know, no man's land where midnight movie fans tend to pick up this stuff much Mm -hmm. earlier. Because they just get loved the whole spectacle of it, even if they don't get the... It's just the fact that it's so much in-your-face spectacle. And there's something about the communal experience of watching that. Like, this isn't a psychedelic film, but I remember going to see um, Mandy together with a bunch... Well, it's semi-psychedelic, but going to see that with a bunch of people and all of us just sort of looking at each other throughout the whole film, being like, did that just... That's that's (laughs) happening now? Okay. (laughs) You know, and there's there's a pleasure in that sort of communal what-the-fuckness. It's really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there's... 
uh, something with the midnight crowd too. I see it a lot with, I don't know if it's happening where you are as much cat, but a lot of shot on video stuff is kind of the new midnight here. I, I think that it's just like the midnight crowd is willing to watch a movie. That's like, this has a couple things going for it. Yeah. No, I and think then, it's, 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 yeah. it's much more diverse. We don't tend to have it so much in cinema here, but obviously it's the same people in the home video market. Mm. Same people watching weird Hodoransky bootlegs that were, <laughs> yeah. you know, that that are sort of in that same crowd, the midnight movie crowd. But I think there's much more of an open-mindedness there. Whereas, you know, certain serious film scholarship, we're only really now seeing Hodorowski given serious scholarship, which is crazy, given. Yeah. You know, the whole panic movement thing and the whole political edge of his films. It's like, and he's, he often talks about that himself, you know, it's only now. And a lot of that was to do with Dune. And then suddenly we start seeing all these wonderful restorations. Mm. And it's like, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing, though, because despite all the politics and the spiritual thing, you don't have to be in. The first time I saw Holy Mountain, I... I wasn't as absorbed in like spiritual things as I am now. Like I specialize in the occult <laughs> and stuff in my film writing. So I wasn't even looking at it for that. It was because it was weird. It's like, this is weird. Yeah. I like, just give me this weird. Oh my God. Toad, comedian, circus. <laughs> What's <laughs> going on here? Yeah. <laughs> Why is he eating Jesus's this face? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. the best thing I've ever seen. Why? I don't know. It's just great. And there's like a purity to Hodorowsky. Like you said earlier about his, um, you know, not being so intellectual. There's more of an honesty to it, I think, because they did honestly believe they were like taking some kind of spiritual trip, like as a collective. And the other people would be drawn into that. It's like a like a almost like a childish honesty to it, which I appreciate. Totally, I think that I wrote down that I think that something that gives the film appeal is its lack of subtlety. Because I feel like sometimes when I'm engaging with a, a similar work that's trying to be religious and maybe engage with politics, I really have to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. Whereas this one, it's just out there, you know? It's, it's no, just trying don't. to it's, throw it all. Yeah, it's like sometimes you can feel like you're being lectured to or talked down to or something's just being weird for the sake of it to kind of obscure things so that mm -hmm. only certain people can get it and you need to get it. Like that whole thing, I'm really not into that. Whereas... Hodorowski is like a child, this exper strange experiment. Like, I mean, he is pooing in his own hand and smearing it <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, there's a joy in that too. Yeah. There's a joy in that too. And there's a lot of humour in the film as well, even though yeah. it's, it is kind of like theatre of cruelty in this, like, barrage, which he really believed in. It's like, you know, Hodorowski was like Arto. Arto was like the surrealist don't go far enough i'm going to start this theater where you know <laughs> we're the really gonna being, have people in the up. middle being assaulted <laughs> and it kind of does the same thing but there's also like really funny moments in it as well that just remind you that he's human i think the most important thing is that this is extremely competently made like it's yeah. beautiful to look at at any point of this you could take a still frame from this and be like that's a painting like yeah. it, i mean like the the table that's the eyeball is like how does your brain work that way yeah. to both have this symbolism and have it be a gorgeous shot. And, and I mean, like you're saying, it, it's also wild to think that this maniac who's 
doing all this theater <laughs> stuff with his his actors is also he has a crew that seems to be a, like a tight professional <laughs> movie crew that is just shooting perfectly like it's not a uh, it's not a roughshod film this looks like uh you know it's a uh, vincent minnelli or something <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's he was weird. just making up as he went along as well there mm-hmm. was that that kind of what looks like a crane shot in El Topo, and he said, "Yeah, I read. I don't know, it was one of his interviews or his old commentaries where he's going on about how Sergio Leone. We went to dinner with him. He's like, how do you do this? And how do he's like, oh, I just got a stack of chairs. <laughs> there's like no safety yeah. in mind no. at all. There's that so not to go into another film, but there's a whole scene in El Topo where they're on this bridge that is about to collapse and he's like climbing on the side of it and like you're just like oh yeah. my god get down off there please no. he yeah. didn't oh, yeah. have a permit to land the helicopter in a public street and he went we're gonna do it anyway because i and, need the yeah. shot <laughs> this is why you need to be a weird messianic figure because <laughs> you can convince anyone of anything no problem Oh, man. All right. Well, I'm going to bring us into our next film, which uh, perhaps is not as critically acclaimed, but boy, is it full of some whacked out imagery. That's going to be Messiah of Evil coming up after the break. Provocative imagery is especially effective in horror. I still get chills when I think about Twin Peaks' Bob in nightmarish slow motion climbing over the couch to get Maddie Ferguson. As someone who finds movie theaters her happy place, there is one particular scene in our next movie, Messiah of Evil, that I find particularly skin-crawling as that theater becomes progressively less safe, as does a supermarket and a whole beachside town. Let's get into this one before I give too much away. Cat, you can go ahead and give it away. Oh, wow. Well, a lot easier to, to surmise than the Holy Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Messiah of Evil is it's just pure American Gothic. You've got this, this young woman named Arletti, who's played by Mariana Hill, and she, her father's missing. He's, he's like an artist, and she goes off to this coastal town and I always, anything nautical, and I'm there. Just <laughs> a point doom. And she finds a really strange insular community there. Like her, her father's missing. She finds his diaries and he starts talking about these strange incidences around the town. And it turns out that the town is, is going through this strange sort of cur- curse. It's very Lovecrafty and it's it's kind of like a zombie film, but not. And Arletti meets this like strange group talking to hippies. This strange mm. group. There's there's Tom played by Michael Greer and these two women who are all over him all the time. Tony played <laughs> For by some Joy reason. Bang and, and Laura. <laughs> I know because he's just <laughs> and and Laura played by uh, Anitra Ford. So she hooks up with them and they start investigating this town and it just becomes weirder and weirder and weirder. I mean, this film just occupies for an American film. I know, I think we talked about this when we did Let's Scare Jessica to Death. It's this weird, like there's this weird subset of American films that come out around Mm. this time. Uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Carnival of Souls, Messiah of Evil that seem to exist in a universe completely of their own. The the vibe, (laughs) the feel of them, you know, you could say it's a zombie film, but it's 
kind of but not really you it's could... more of like a soulless human film like mm. yeah they're, they're less zombie than they are yeah. like devoid of soul yes yeah, just like unlike anything else and just occupies this really strange energy and i love the fact that since it got a blu-ray more and more people have been discovering it and they're just like where has this film been all my life oh my <laughs> god like why haven't i seen this before this what's is bonkers is the amount of incredibly like people we now know as like huge directors like tim burton oh. is a huge fan of this mm. movie and um when he was working with his editor and his cinematographer i believe it was his editor who had worked on this yeah. uh this one and uh he was like oh I worked, my first movie was this movie you probably never heard of called messiah of evil and he's like oh, i've seen it i loved it i watched <laughs> <laughs> drive through like six times and this was like in like the 90s right so it wouldn't have had that release at that point which is interesting that it even had then kind of clicked into people who knew what they were looking at it's i mean yeah i i, I think that this kind of film that you talk about is has increasingly it's kind of being like you said the midnight crowd is now it's come into the art crowd who's sort of forming this oeuvre uh, and it's, but I love, yeah, I love it. It's the weird kind of takes the European feel and, and puts it in America and it has this tone. Like I like these movies where it almost seems like you're like, is this acting bad? But then everyone's acting the same way and you're like, no, no this it's is like a they're on drugs, choice. isn't it? It's yeah. like there's something not like, like a strange disconnect. Everyone's kind of, mm -hmm. and you only see it in those American underground films yeah. it's similar in jessica everyone is kind of on edge and mm -hmm. you know i don't think it's it's bad acting at all no, no. something else is going on it's yeah because it also ends up being extremely disturbing in a way uh yeah and then you find out that all the zombies are <laughs> aerospace employees who have yeah. are out of work <laughs> they just got everybody from the, the I job had to line look up what happened and with the aerospace layoffs and this happened mm. in like 1970 1971 and basically after we landed on the moon this well we i say that as a collective humanity um <laughs> after nasa landed on the moon um they started cutting because there, there was like they, there was such a big depression they started cutting stuff because they're like well we made it there we don't really need anything else and so mm. all of those programs got cut and there's this bonkers ad in the New York Times where they're lamenting the um, the massive cuts made to the Werner von Braun section of it where they're just like wow our our Germans they refer to them as in the New York Times so it yeah. is uh, it's an interesting little article being like these are our heroes and we let them go we let them down weird yeah I, I mean but yeah it's I it's also fascinating. I will say that we've talked actually a lot about this movie because we've talked a lot about the the filmmakers behind it um, because they just keep coming up for some reason on our podcast. And I was fascinated. I've never dug too deep into it. It's just a movie I liked and enjoyed. And I've always considered for Willard Hayek and Gloria Katz that this is like this is like this is what they could have been doing this whole time but then to find out they hate it <laughs> and they, they've know, essentially disowned sad. it it's sad it is pretty yeah. sad because it is an actual masterpiece and that's not oh, just yeah. hyperbole it's, it's such a special film and it's a shame they don't love it and cherish it as much as mm -hmm. it's become loved and cherished like especially in the last decade or so do they so speak original. fondly of any of their work though uh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Temple <laughs> of Doom, maybe. I think that they like what they added to Star Wars, from what I could see. Yeah, they, she they is kinda... a gl yeah. Gloria Katz yeah. rewrote Princess Leia for people who yeah, do not so know. I, it's yeah. I think that they're, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's and it's weird because like, yeah, looking at their whole filmography, 
They this did is tell with the one. duck mind. Yes. You know, that's almost yeah. unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, because we've gotten, unfortunately, deep in Howard the Duck, their original concept was animated and psychedelic, I believe. So oh. I, I don't think that they even got to really get their Howard to the screen. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's people who are beaten down by quite often not being able to get the movies they wanted to make made. Um but yeah, it's very unfortunate. And I think of something like I heard them complain about the soundtrack and I like wrote this whole thing where I'm like, I'm trying to research this electronic musician. It's amazing, isn't it? It's it amazing. Really, it is so amazing. The soundtrack and so like this was 73 by the early 80s. That kind of soundtrack was like this absolutely dominant thing. But this is like 73 where electronic music is quite new and experimental yeah. and it's just it's so good Everything so good about I, it. yeah and that's like it's a thing that was added by the company that took it away from them uh, but it's like maybe that company knew what they were doing well, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this whole process in general because i'm like is this just the case of like incompetence producing gold because you see a whole bunch of people like they, they were fresh out of film school. This was their first um, their first feature that they were given the chance to co-direct. Of course, Gloria Katz doesn't get the co-directing credit, but she did. Um, they co-wrote it together as as the, the writing team that they are. Um, and they were they, they took this as the handoff because they're like, this is how everybody was getting in. Everybody mm-hmm. did a bad yeah. horror movie. Sure. And then then the studios called you and gave you like a million dollars to make the movie you really wanted to make. That's how it was working in the early 70s but you have people like Jack Fisk who is the editor you've got these incredible cinematog- this incredible cinematographer who's doing a bunch of stuff and everybody seems to be doing their own thing and that, those people turned out to be very good at what they did yeah. but yeah. it seems like the overall direction which was provided by um, Willard Yuck and Gloria Katz is, is the part that's kind of disparate and why it was taken away from them because the stuff they wanted to do when you hear about what they, what they wanted to keep moving with like the ending that tied everything together like this movie is so much better ambiguous yeah i don't want to know anything about the dark stranger so it's yeah. in, it's like it, yeah is this just the fact that like they just luck into how good this actually is it is one of the clo- like lovecraft has been notoriously difficult to film yeah mm-hmm. and i always feel like the best lovecraftian films are not lovecraft films so like the thing yeah. and yeah. this is like the closest mm. you actually get to that uncanny sense of terror in lovecraft without being Lovecraft. And I know they talked about being fans of Lovecraft. They yeah. really get that Lovecrafting, like that fear of the yeah. other, the fear of the outsider, the whole small town thing, and this idea of contagion. And, you know, it, it's just so unsettling, but they seem to get that really instinctively. And, yeah, and that's also a, a thing that I was fascinated by because I thought like, oh, this is fully like put together like a Lovecraft story. Mm. But they say that a lot of that voiceover, which is so Lovecraft, like somebody speaking from the future about a horrible yeah. event that's happened, they say that the, a lot of that was thrown on because they didn't get their ending. One tune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. But what happened there, what they did to me, what they're doing now, coming here but it's like but you just made it more love like, yeah, when you created totally. this weird horror the moment. whole idea of the yeah. diary and finding the dad's mm. diary and that whole like tracking back and what happened and these things unfolding and and something from a hundred years ago sort of resurfacing yeah. is this threat 
is is so pure Lovecraft, and I American Gothic's one of my favorite things ever. But I don't see we we don't see enough of it in cinema. Like mm. they talked about in one of the interviews they did how they were looking at the Universal classics. No Universal film is like Messiah of Evil. <laughs> no. so what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> but Universal had this tendency to focus on European Gothic, and American mm. Gothic is often far more perverse. You've always got True. this obsession with mania with madness with this paranoia of like the savage coming in this weird american thing of like mm. the outsiders are coming they're gonna get us and paranoia and all of this thing and it r- happened so rarely in cinema i know poe was like difficult to adapt and mm. roger corman did his own thing with that but made them more like <laughs> european films yeah and you know and lovecraft is is really difficult to adapt but they really nailed it in a way, you know, the whole coastal thing, which you then later see in The Fog, John Carpenter's mm. The Fog, which is another great American Gothic. So it's like more of this. And it's like you guys have just like made this masterpiece of like before, I'm pretty sure before Salem's Lot as well. So you've got the idea yeah. of the town yeah. being corrupted, which was like the big thing in, in King's Salem's Lot. I can't remember what year that came out. But I think it pretty sure it was after this, this idea of like everybody being corrupted by some nefarious force. And it's like they don't seem to have any idea what they've done. What they made. But then you hear about the cinematography and one of the reasons this looks so different is the cinematographer was getting pushback from a lot of uh, the producers being like, this is eventually going to air on TV because that's how we're going to sell it. So make sure like, you know, you're fitting the images to this tiny little box. And he was like, no, I I want this to be cinematic. I want this to be a movie, which is why you have those big sweeping vistas, why you have like these wide shots of, of even like one of my favorites is at the gas station the first time you see um the guy standing there in that gorgeously framed shot where he's right in the middle and you're like oh this is creepy and weird or like even like the 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 gas station attendant shooting off into the dark at something that you don't even know what it is but the way they framed it you're like that's and then he's like can i fill it up for you you know what were you just shooting at just for fun um it's very cool Again, this is the first year I watched the film Lamora, which has weirdly some yeah, similar. They also have similar. the the beast people just in the dark <laughs> that are kind of thrown out there, and you're like, yeah, why? Why was what was connecting? But I think you're right that the the Poe and the Lovecraft thing is also because you know those are mostly poems and short stories, so they're kind of sketchy in their way. And I think people are so afraid to let a film be sort of sketchy and loose. And I guess maybe you need a, a messy situation to produce that. I don't know. I do feel this... with Lovecraft, people tend to overload with effects. They try and go for more effects-driven mm. stuff. And obviously in the early 70s, the technology just wasn't there. Like, you can yeah. do Lovecraft easily now with all the CGI and everything. But but the ones that really work are the ones that just focus on that absolute like i remember reading mountains of madness when i was a teen and that severely traumatized me like (laughs) and and it wasn't necessarily the blind six foot penguins although that haunted me for a long time it was this overriding feeling of just oh like this horrible feeling that you get and the ones that are more effective capture that feeling messiah of evil does that like really in really simple terms like there's the scene in the cinema is flat out one of my favorite scenes in oh, all of so 70s good. horror and it's so simple and like you said 
aerospace workers <laughs> they're not even actors but it is chilling it's just really absolutely disturbing well because it's taking that idea of like it would because everything seems safe and there's nothing yeah. unusual about especially in the 70s of people coming into a theater you know a little bit late and then sitting down but it's just it's the moment and it's so beautifully acted it's the moment when she realizes she's surrounded that's mm. when it's like oh shit and you have that beautiful dramatic irony for us because we see all of these people coming in and she doesn't know she's fucked yet and yet they keep yeah. cutting to um to the western film Gone with the West which I'm like this movie came out the year before how did they get the footage rights for that <laughs> to play in this yeah. movie i'm fascinated they knew by the that. right guy they must have i, I i'm interested too because uh steven katz the cinematographer who we should say is gloria katz's brother which is also interesting uh she just got her brother to do it who went on to be john landis's cinematographer hey. uh, <laughs> he uh but he he said that he also wanted it to be like brightly lit which i think adds to that safety like that mm. feeling that that you're in a normal world. I also think that there's something incredibly disturbing to me that the outside world seems to know what's happening. This is not one of those insular towns where uh, something's going wrong, but it's like the, you can't leave. This mm. one is like like everybody tells them not to go to this town. Yeah. There are kind of cops from outside saying, "Hey, you should probably leave. Uh, nothing good comes from this." And then the <laughs> two the two cops that should show up to shoot at zombies and just get completely fucked is so weird yeah it's something it's just an upsetting film in a lot of ways uh that it's hard to put your finger on and that's that's i guess the psychedelic idea the way that it's crawling in your head in kind of inexplicable ways the supermarket scene as well mm. yeah it's, it's slurping on the meat yeah <sighs> those all this the sound whenever they they have a lot in the supermarket a lot the the there is no music, too. I think sometimes they pull away the music. Same with the opening. It's just breathing and footsteps and, and murder, and it, it's, it makes you so tense. I don't yeah. care for it. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's one of those, we talked about it earlier, how, like, the acting level is, like, is this good acting or is this mm. just, you know, what is it? Um, but I want to bring us into Michael Greer because he was sure. someone who had a really interesting career. And I think he's so good in this, seeing as, like, he has this, like, um, almost like a sexual ambiguity to him, yeah. which I think is really effective of like, is he actually interested in sleeping with all these women or is there something off and weird about him as well? Because mm. he's so, he's got like almost an asexuality to him in this film. It's, it's a, a really interesting choice. You don't understand why those women are all over him. Yeah. And and, and he it immediately sets him up as kind of sinister. It's a great performance because you can't yeah. figure him out. And, and yeah. I don't want to know more about him. That's the big thing. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, do not explain anything about this man. Yeah. I, I, it reminded me, just to bring it to another podcast one, when we talked about Rupert Everett and Cemetery mm. Man, the, the kind of like iconic gay person playing very straight, swarthy, has, has that weird feel where you're like, I get it, but I don't, yeah. And yeah, so Michael Greer is uh, like a famous drag performer discovered by Judy Garland. Uh, he apparently dubbed Betty Davis in a few of her final performances, which, which I love. I love. Uh, and it, it, interestingly, I, I'm super into like Canadian queer cinema, and, and uh, he's in the version of Fortune in Men's Eyes that's kind of gotten a little lost with Salminio. Um, but he he started that role on Broadway, and uh, yeah, so it's he's a very interesting guy to see in this because I only know him from like the Gay Deceivers, where he's like a very queeny sort of swishy but at the same time was very groundbreaking he was a gay actor who was willing to play gay and yeah so very interesting to see him 
I think convincingly play a straight weirdo. Yeah, here. like the kind of Lothario, but not quite. Uh, you get mm. the sense he's like some sort of cult leader, maybe, or yeah. there's because he's clearly bit... preying on vulnerability. Like yeah. the, yes. both those, yeah. And then the one, the one he's woman quite is like cruel oh, I see what this to is. the women. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they talk about drugs. And so I want like it's like he's is he a drug dealer? I mean, when you meet him, he's like he's got a hobo in his room, that he's just <laughs> getting to tell him stories, which is the weirdest thing on earth. I remember the red moon my daddy told me about only once. Mama gave him a bad look when he talked about it. He was only a boy himself then. He called it the blood moon. He said that was the night that he lost religion. That hobo is amazing, though. <laughs> Amazing, and, and I believe another like fairly classic actor too. Like the other thing is, of course, when you're making films for cheap in Hollywood in this era, you're getting guys who are like he's from the House on Haunted Hill, that hobo, which is wild. I don't know what he plays, but he's in it. He's in the Maltese Falcon, apparently. A, a fascinating uh, Alicia Cook Jr. is his name, but yeah, hmm. that that speech. Uh, they they wanted to feed me to the chickens, but my mother said, or my father said, we could use a boy. <laughs> so, so weird. This crosses sort of a boundary because, of course, as we mentioned, this is the time where like they were just churning out as many horror movies as possible to get into the drive-ins to put them on TV for for that kind of um, th that kind of just quick, easy buck and and repeatability. And this one feels like there was a, an attempt to make it better, like taking that, like we're gonna we're gonna make this our call of calling card and elevate it looking at like you know french and italian cinema there's clear antonioni influences in here but i love the fact that the producers wanted to call this return of the living dead which yeah. of course you would get later in 1985 <laughs> we'll be talking about it later but it's such an interesting way to capitalize on a franchise that is murky in its um in its legal ownership we're going to get into this into a later episode but uh this is the one time they were really able to kind of um combat the usage of the name of the living dead it's really interesting to me because post... also these aren't living dead people like that's not really what this is yeah that whole post romero thing though really sparked especially in the early 70s some really amazing really experimental quote-unquote zombie cinema like the teams of the blind dead and oh, yeah. jorge grouse manchester morgue living dead at the manchester morgue oh, yeah. as well and and people just it was almost as if because romero did so well people using that as a sound like oh i'll do you a script on this but then just doing whatever the hell they wanted not yeah. actually doing that yes. um a death dreams another really interesting one oh. in that era yeah. which uh I think came out the same year as this, actually. Yeah, it I always might, call them yeah. Nightmare USA films because Stephen Thrower put yeah. them all together in that amazing book. Was like made them a kind of little genre, I guess, of their own. But Death Dream by Bob Clark. Bob it's Clark, yeah. One, yeah, it's just so such a weird film. Like you just get this feeling like <laughs> that really bad's gonna happen. There's yeah, someone with an eclectic resume that I'm sure we'll have to cover yeah. eventually. <laughs> it's, it's like, to me, it's like upsetting films too. Like films that, and it's not that anything uh, more, like I would say that more upsetting things happen in Holy Mountain, but uh, some something about when you leave the movie, you're like, ugh. 
the world is evil. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like there's, there is a, a dark rot inside. Yeah. And I mean, just images, I, I mean, I, this is just my gender studies coming through, but when, when she's stabbing her inner thigh, oh, yeah. which is Ugh. like a weird, there's like menstrual rituals that are like that. And uh, yeah, that's such a, such a disturbing image. But it does the whole gothic gaslighting thing, which we talked about when we did uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death as well. This idea of women on the brink of madness, mm. which I, I feel was a big thing in the early 70s. It was just sure. to be everywhere, didn't it? Well, it's also preying into the feminist aspect, right? Yeah. Of like, um, you're, they're, we think women are crazy. They're overreacting about everything. You know, it's that when they make those insinuations, the art curator at the beginning is number one, your dad's a crappy artist. And number two, mm. all he does is bring women up to his apartment to bang them to his daughter. Yeah. Like that's, it's very interesting. <laughs> like even from the very beginning, everyone is treating her like she's not well in the head. Yeah. Joseph Lang, do I know who he is? We do get magazines in Point Dune which some of us can even read. Which I really like that, and I like the fact that they left it ambiguous, but just the screaming and everything. I just <laughs> She's such a... What a good screamer, yeah. too. My God, I felt bad because I was watching it in the morning, and I'm like, if people upstairs are hearing these screams... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know well, what? They're, you get to be somebody's story. <laughs> that yeah. makes somebody's day better, I'm sure, when they get to tell a story about their weird uh, house, yeah. housemates, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right, anything else we want to talk about on this one? Oh, the not happy ending. Yes, please. Let's bring up the let's bring up the ending because it is, uh, yeah, not happy. But like, how many horror movies of this time? Like, did horror movies have to have a happy? No, I feel like this was the major shift. I think post like Rosemary's Mm. Baby and and Night of the Living Dead was if you look at the more kind of gothic-y stuff from earlier on, it's very clear-cut, good versus evil, Dracula gets defeated by the end, you know. Mm. Whereas by the 70s or late 60s, early 70s, you end up with this, especially the more independent stuff, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You Mm. know, it's basically things that will just leave you devastated because it's just like Mm. such a cynical... It's amazing, and it's obviously to do with the climate because the early 70s was a really cynical climate, like politically, culturally, everyone was, you know, especially post-Manson, everyone had had their minds blown. And you just get this this change. And for America, I always associate, like, no offence to Americans, but, (laughs) but, you know, that (laughs) Hollywood thing with the kind of very clear good versus evil Mm. we've seen that come back with the superhero film like people like these nice clean narratives and just for that little while in genre cinema let's scare jessica to death messiah of evil you know these these things that leave you with you know by the time you get to the end it's like this is it you know everything everybody's dead you're all gonna die yeah. and anyone survives they're just gonna think you're mad stick you in this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's like yeah and like texas chainsaw you know with the with the whole ending in that this whole thing oh yeah look at this no sorry and, and <laughs> yeah. you know you think she's fine she's not yeah. fine she's it, never been fine she'll never be yeah fine that again. that last shot of texas Chainsaw with the kind of hysterical yeah. laughing i feel just sums up that whole era 
And Messiah of Evil does that well. Because they, the, the tagline for that is uh, who, what will be left of them is the last bit, right? Who will survive and what will be left of them. And I love that idea of like, yeah, she she kept all her limbs, but her brain is gone, right? Yeah. Like she's completely destroyed. And it, yeah, it's such an interesting such an interesting point, Kat. Yeah, I mean, the ending when they kind of swim away and then he's just he just drifts off. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then she's sort of stuck in this hospital with everything everyone treating her like she's nuts it's it's awful but it's amazing yeah. at the same time it is amazing seems much more in line with european stuff weirdly they shit talk all these horror things but then they say that they love italian films and french films and it's like in, in your own way you kind of accidentally made an italian horror movie <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, they did, are. you did make a modern horror movie yeah because yeah it, this kind of weirdly foreshadows like Fulci zombie flesh eaters yeah with the, with the dad and the daughter going to look for the dad and the diaries and you know it's totally got a European vibe. A lot of those films have. It's like, I don't know if it's just because filmmakers were just suddenly watching more Europeans because the 60s got flooded with mm. it. And then they just started taking that over into their own film, maybe subconsciously just thinking, hey, I want to do this a different way. But it it totally feels more in line with the, the Eurocult stuff, which is always much more surreal. It always had like horrible endings or nihilistic endings. Yeah. And it's almost as if it carried over just for a little while. And and then we get to the slasher and it's that good versus evil was back. I love the yeah. slasher, but it is very, you know, confront the beast, survive at the end, you know, the hero, yeah. the final girl. Whereas in the 70s, you know, if you got out, you were going to be left screaming in hysterical on the back of some <laughs> truck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that is exactly where we need to leave this episode. So Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you, and I will say that if, if you like the Fillion Bishop soundtrack, uh, he only did two more movies, but they're The Severed Arm and Kiss of the Tarantula, which both seem pretty fun. <laughs> Kiss the Tarantula? Ooh, I mean, that sounds Evil that sounds kid crazy. who kills people with spiders. <laughs> really? <laughs> <just what> <laughs> ah, yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, man, I love it. Uh, Kat Ellinger, thank you so much for joining us once again it's always a pleasure to have you this was was fun uh we greatly enjoyed your performance on woodland's dark and days bewitched uh fantastic talking head action there yes (laughs) (laughs) i was on the resident witch so (laughs) Is, is there anything else you want to point people towards um well talking of um talking of theater of cruelty i just did a commentary track on gaspar noe's luxa turner for talking nice. about trippy over the top sense exosensory extra sensory cinema i think that is the <laughs> kind of natural successor <laughs> in a way so check that out it's coming out from Arrow very soon, I believe. (laughs) Thank you once again, Kat. And you can join us next time where we're going to be joined by Hollywood Speed's own Lacey Novinka and we'll look at two women-directed films. It's Stephanie Rothschild's Group Marriage and Lena Vertmuller's Love and Anarchy. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. 
Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cam Maitland and Kat Allinger as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>